Tatiahao and welcome to Delving into Asian Psyches, the podcast in which we investigate the pasts, presents and futures of psychology in the Indo-Pacific. My name is Robin Weber and today I'm joined by Barry Tzu in Singapore. So to start off, I will give you some information about today's interviewee. So Barry is originally from Hong Kong and is a current PhD candidate at James Cook University in Singapore. He's completed postgraduate studies in psychology and business administrations. In his master's, he researched various branches of Buddhism and he is now part of the Aus Asian Mental Health Research Group and creates a Buddhist religiosity scale for his dissertation. He furthermore founded Wisdom Asia, a marketing and research consulting company, which also offers mindfulness courses. He himself is a strong advocate and has 30 years of meditation practice. He has also received training for mindfulness-based cognitive therapy approaches, especially concerning depression and finding peace. In his years of experience, he has lived and worked in Singapore, Hong Kong and China. And I would like to also use this to give you a brief introduction to Buddhism, as we're going to talk quite extensively about it in this episode. Buddhism is a religion and philosophy with over 2,500 years of history originating in India and then spreading across the Asia-Pacific region, including China and through it Singapore, as, for example, depicted in the classic novel Journey to the West. The religion was founded by the Buddha, who taught the Four Noble Truths that are all life is suffering, which is caused by attachment that is possible to cease by following the Noble Eightfold Path. The main branches of Buddhism are Theravada, Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism. Theravada is considered the oldest and closest to the original teaching of the Buddha and is found most prevalently in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia. Mahayana focuses on the Bodhisattva path to Buddhahood, which focuses rather on the well-being of others, and it is most commonly found in East Asia. And lastly, Vajrayana is also a major school which connects to traditional and tantric practices and is often just called Tibetan Buddhism as it's mostly located in the Himalayan region. Now, with that, I would like to turn to our interviewee. And hello, Barry. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Robin, for the introduction and a very uh, brief and concise rundown on what Buddhism is. And I'm glad uh, to have this opportunity to share things I know and things I've been doing so far. Great. Yeah, I'm sure it will be fun. So to start off with, Singapore is a special case in my collection of countries as it's a city-state and small in size. But it has earned an important role in psychology in Asia, attracting many researchers from all over the world, such as you, for example. You have also come to the city as part of your ongoing doctorate. Could you explain how did Singapore build that research environment in psychology it has today? Well, I would say Singapore is in a very special position, uh, whereby it actually has a very dynamic interaction between the East and the West. So even back in its colonial era, as a colony of uh, the British Empire, 
just like Hong Kong, where I grew up, Singapore has already adopted some Western understanding or concept of psychology. So with all these years of development, it has basically absorbed the Western understanding of psychology. And at the same time, because of the mix of ethnic and racial groups in Singapore, each of them come to the picture with their own individual beliefs and cultural context uh, that makes the Singapore population so vibrant and so unique. So to do psychological research in Singapore actually offers you a lot of different perspectives. And basically, it nurtures your ideas and allows you a lot of new understandings to any particular issues. Yeah, I, I can see how that is a very rich field for a psychologist to dig into. And to come to your field of expertise uh, in a more in-depth way, the psychology of religion, I wonder how was this field originally established and how and which religions were studies um, in the beginning? Also, how does the psychological approach differ from a theological one, basically? Right. My, my field of study is more in the psychology of religion, although I, I specialize more on the Buddhist part than the others. But the original kind of idea, we could attribute it to uh, William James. So William James has written a book on the religious experiences of man. So that book, details how he thinks religious experience has shaped us or affect the way we behave and all that. And interestingly, uh, William James was actually quite interested in Buddhism himself. One of the um, kind of talks or seminars back in the days, he even invited one Sri Lankan monk to be a lecturer for, for those seminars. And that was one particular incident where William James, when introducing the monk, the monk say, oh, I'm so honored to be here in the great minds of psychologists like William James. And uh, William James say, no, I'm not the master in psychology, but you are. He reverted the monk and saying that because Buddhism has been studying the mind of human being for centuries, way before psychology even became a subject. So that's how the field of psychology of religion first started. And it became more popular, especially the U.S. So it's still pretty much a uh, Western-centric view about religion. So basically, the scientific study of it started mainly in the 50s, 60s, and then from there onwards, 70s, 80s, and uh, currently there are plenty of studies, religion, but primarily those studies focus on Christianity. So it's self-explanatory because it all started in uh, the U.S., in the Western world. The main religion there is Christianity anyway. So they have a lot of studies on how religion contributed to the well-beings, uh, decision-makings, mental health, even more applied fields in like in management, in work, uh, in many aspects. So it tells me that at the end of the day, even if we are studying the psychology of religion, in actual fact, we are studying the individual, their own inclinations, that their own predispositions. So that's the interesting part. 
that's the beginning of psychology of religion. And in the last, say, 30, 40 years, people started to say, well, there are many religions in the world. We should study other religions as well. So especially in the last 20 years, uh, we started to see interest in other religions. Uh, when I say other religions, the main one uh, that's being studied is still Islam. That's because Christianity it has the biggest followers and the second largest religion is actually Islam. So there has been quite a bit of research related to Muslims and we, we can expect the kind of focus that they have, especially the papers coming out from the West. But there are equally a lot of psychology scholars in the Middle East and also in part of Southeast Asia who focus on the effect of Islam uh, belief on people. Those are focusing more on the social aspects and uh, even work aspects. But these two, they have a very similar background. Both are called Abrahamic religion. So they believe in one creator God. The current framework of, say for example, how religious you are, is developed based on the belief that you should believe in an omnipotent, almighty God that created everything. So the agency of individuals is perhaps not entirely theirs. You have to follow God's will. There are commandments being dictated for the believers. The framework is different. But then there are another two very important religions in the world. One is Hinduism, the other one is Buddhism. Hinduism is primarily practiced in India and many other Indians around the world as well. That's actually the third largest religion. And Buddhism is considered the fourth largest religion in the world. The early study of Buddhist religiosity, again, was done in the West. And that's my area of interest. Uh, when I was reading up on Buddhism research, a lot of were theological based. So theologians writing up about uh, the doctrinal meanings, debating about certain phrases in, in the sutra and certain concepts. But there is no empirical evidence to back up their claims. But those are all theological explanations and debates. That's the difference between the um, kind of Buddhist studies by the theologians and the um, psychology of religion studies uh, for, for Buddhism. So one's arguing about facets of Buddhism from the sutras, the, the teachings perspective, whereas the psychologists on this side are trying to test how well those doctrines or those um, teachings stand up to the test in real life via all these psychological testings. So that's the part I'm, I'm focusing on. Yeah, I see. It's, I think, a really good explanation that you gave and you've covered, I think, a good lots of ground to understand the whole background that we are now hoping to get into. Uh, in your personal research, you are um, developing a scale for Buddhist belief, actually, and you are using two different approaches called ethic and emic. So first of all, could you perhaps explain how this work looks in practice? But also, what relevance do you see in creating that one? Well, yes, I mean, it flows nicely from what I've just uh, mentioned earlier on about 
all the scales that being used in all this psychological research were developed in the West and based on the Western belief of religion. But Buddhism is quite different. Hinduism as well. Hinduism has multiple gods. There are many levels of gods in the Hindu worlds. But in Buddhism, because we do not have creator god, the Buddha, he was a person. He achieved Buddhahood. That's it. He doesn't create the world. He doesn't control everything. Things are controlled or determined by the mechanism or by the working of Dharma. And Dharma is very complicated, but it can be explained in a very simple term. It's as simple as cause, condition, and effect. When the condition is right, you will see the effect. So that is Dharma in the simplest terms. So imagine that when in the Western understanding of religion, oh, God has his own will to dictate how things work out. But in Buddhism, say, no, no, no. Buddha doesn't interfere in your life. Your life is a result of all the actions, the thoughts you might have given to it that led to the action and the condition around you. And that's the result that you are seeing. You have a tough life. That's because all these things working together. You have a very good and easy life. Again, that's because all these things working together. It is not uh, deterministic. So there's no saying that, oh, that's your fate. No, it's not like that. Because it's cause and effect. You can change the cause and then you will have a different effect. So when we measure how religious you are using a framework that we have taken or adapted from the Western understanding of religiosity, it doesn't really make sense, right? But unfortunately, those are the scales available out there. And there were some attempts in the past trying to come up with a Buddhist religiously scale, but they were, I would say they were pretty isolated in the way they develop it because they rely on their own understanding on the specific Buddhist branch. For example, there's one being developed uh, on samples from China and Vietnam, but both countries were based on Mahayana Buddhism. And in the early beginning, you when you introduce Buddhism, there are three branches, right? Three major schools, and each would have their unique characteristics. So if I were to use that approach to measure how religious a Buddhist is, it doesn't make sense to you people who practice, the, say, the Theravada or the Vajrayana Buddhism, they will find some of the wordings or some of the concepts alien or even not uh, agreeable to them. That's why the approach I'm taking is an amic and attic approach. So the amic part is actually coming from the ground up. So understanding from uh, where it happens. So I've been collecting from scholars and Buddhist masters who are focusing on the three different branches. So that's the part I'm trying to build up how religiosity of Buddhists should be measured based on the doctrinal understanding from all these masters and scholars. Another part is the ethic part. That is the part that I will try and allow 
the new scale, that means the way that we look at religiosities of Buddhists, to have some common grounds that can be compared to uh, the other religiosity scales that's built, developed based on the Western understanding. Uh, for example, the Western understanding of uh, religiosity, usually we can break it down to three Bs, belief, belong, and behave. What you do, that's behave. Which church or establishments that you, you belong to, uh, and the belief, of course, in God. In the scale I'm developing, based on all the discussions, all the uh, suggestions that we gather from all the scholars and masters about how Buddhists should behave, should believe, and also double-checking with them whether elements like belong actually is relevant to Buddhism. So in a way, this scale, it should reflect the true Buddhist religiosity, at the same time be able to compare and contrast with the Western understanding of religion. I see. Yeah. I really like how you broke that down. And it sure makes sense from that perspective, having some tool that also unifies the Buddhist beliefs. So besides that, from your research, you're also using mindfulness in your work at Wisdom Asia. And mindfulness has originated from Buddhism and was then adapted into a more secular approach. Now, what experience have you made in this aspect as part of your work? But also, I wonder, what is your perception of this approach as a practicing Buddhist? Right. It is interesting that um, actually my idea for my PhD research came out from my master's research, which I was trying to reflect that Buddhists, if they follow what the Buddhist teaching told them to do, it should also reflect the high level of mindfulness. Because mindfulness is a concept and part of the practice of Buddhists. But I did not find a correlation. There's no significant relationship between the two. And I started to wonder why. So that could be two reasons. One is the religiosity scale that I was using was not reflecting how a Buddhist should be behaving or should be thinking. Right. So that's why I'm developing my religiosity scale now. The other part is, oh, that could be many elements. It's related to mindfulness or could contribute to mindfulness by following the different aspects of Buddhism. So without a scale that really reflects the right dimensions of what a Buddhist should be behaving, thinking, having a certain attitudes, I can never find a relationship between Buddhist practice and mindfulness. So that's why I got into the two. But for mindfulness, because it kind of comes out from uh, Buddhist practice, I've been meditating for like 30 years. I only came across mindfulness in 2016. Then I realized the teaching or the, the elements within mindfulness, they are basically identical to what I've been doing on the Buddhist meditation part, except that in circular mindfulness, it doesn't talk about uh, reincarnation or any other chanting. No, 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 no such thing. No religious rituals, nothing about Buddha. It's just purely meditation and the techniques and mechanisms that goes into the whole thing. And that's how I got into circular mindfulness and certified to be a teacher from the uh, Oxford Mindfulness Foundation. And from there onwards, I started to pay special 
attention and have this passion about mindfulness. Because why? You do not need to be a Buddhist, but you can reap the benefits of mindfulness if you practice. As simple as that. And in Buddhism, it is the fundamental tool that you have to develop in order to really walk the Buddhist path. So being mindful in the Theravada perspective, we talk about uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. So there are eight different paths that a Buddhist should embark on that will lead them to Nibbana or Nibbana. So one of the paths is what we call the Sama Sati. Sama means that's the correct, the right way. Sati is mindfulness. So the right mindfulness. That is one of the eightfold paths. And there are so many other paths that you have to practice at the same time in order to achieve liberation from samsara and achieve uh, nirvana. But if you're not a Buddhist, don't worry about the other paths for the time being, unless you want to, well, why not? Let's try nirvana. Uh, but otherwise, samasati is good enough. Mindfulness is basically the circular approach to it. And there has been plenty of research uh, demonstrating the benefits of mindfulness. For example, the most common programs out there, one is called MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, that's by John Kabat-Zinn himself. That is very common for busy executives around the world because they're trying to really reduce the stress. Another program is called MBCT, which is the one I was trained on. It's by a group of psychologists. They were trying to find a way that could really help prevent the relapse of depression. And they were looking around and trying to see some of the theoretical feet with the understanding that they have about how rumination will kick in depressive episodes. So they find Mindfulness could be the solution based on the theoretical understanding of how it works. And they went over to the U.S. and studied under John Kabat-Zinn and basically modified the MBSR and combined with cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, to come up with their MBCT, which stands for Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy. So these two were the main things that came out from it. And later on, uh, people started to talk about compassion. Compassion is another key element within Buddhism, especially in Mahayana Buddhists and also Vajrayana Buddhists. They talk about compassion a lot. So compassion became part of the mindfulness movement. And compassion is also part of Buddhism. So the, the ones who came up with it, again, the Americans, they are very individualistic. They wanted to have some self-care. They, they felt that people are so harsh on themselves so unforgiving. So they found this compassion practice and uh, concept very beneficial to uh, individuals. Then the third major program in the world as mindful self-compassion became another popular trend. And all of them actually came out of Buddhism. So that makes me wonder, that could be a lot of other practices that we can tap into and then try and use psychological approach to test the effectiveness. But one thing is, before we can have a more in-depth and thorough understanding of how Buddhist religiosity can be measured and what are the key elements that contributed to uh, Buddhist religiosity, 
which at the end, if you practice it right, theoretically, it should lead to all this happiness. So by right, it should contribute very positively to promote mental health. But then the key thing is we have to find out what elements actually work and contribute positive uh, effects. That's why that got me so hooked on mindfulness and also how Buddhist psychology elements can contribute uh, further into the mental health for everyone, not just for Buddhists. So I find it very interesting how you link all these things together, but I can really understand how the mindfulness movement uh, has such an uptake in this moment as the importance of the role of religion is also facing big changes in our societies these days. And with all this work that you are doing, you also must have many exchanges with the public on religious matters, but also the importance as well-being, as you just mentioned, as a whole. And I still wonder what is your assessment of the general perceptions of these aspects well, as I said earlier, Singapore is a very unique place where there are many people with different faiths, different cultural backgrounds living together. And in Singapore, in terms of mental health, increasingly in recent years, we are seeing a lot more faith-based psychological counseling happening. So we will see counseling being offered by churches, counseling being offered by mosques under the Muslim faiths. But unfortunately, there hasn't been much kind of mental health provision in the Buddhist camp. For the seculars, of course, mental health is there. It was pretty developed in terms of providing mental health supports and psychological science research into all these areas. But for those who have religion belief, a lot of research now being devoted to this approach to mental health. And there are quite a few other candidates Apart from me looking into religion, but there's another candidate who is researching, he's actually a clinical psychologist. He is researching the use of religion elements in counseling or in psychological intervention. So it is interesting in Singapore that because of all this varied background of people and multiple faith being coexisting, uh, we are able to look into how the faith element is being able to help improve mental health situations as an intervention approach and whether the faith element will make a more positive impact with those who are already in the same faith and even the effect of counselors or psychologists themselves whether people with a particular faith would like to talk to a counselor or a psychologist who is coming from the same faith so that is the interesting part i, I think this will be one of the key focus that research on mental health will develop in Singapore. And I think that's very important because we're tapping into people's own belief and their cultural elements. Okay, well, that's a great answer and a segue to kind of the outlook into the future developments I just wanted to uh, tap into. So you've already um, mentioned a few things that are going to become important for future research, but also on a more broad level, I'm wondering where do you see the psychology of religion as a whole going into with, for example, declining demographics in religious belief? Yes, in terms of the psychology of religion, I think uh, one key trend that I hope and I think it will happen is we'll move away from the West as a center of focus and towards the East 
because uh, on, a, on a recent study when I was collecting data, I realized the mix of religions in Asia is so complicated. And there are more countries within Asia that is highly religious compared to anywhere else. So in order to study the people within those countries who are followers of those faiths and living in the condition that is strongly religious, how their behaviors, their thoughts, their attitudes are being affected by their faith. But that would be a very important thing to explore. Whereas if you look at the Western countries, a lot of them are very much secular. You may have people who follow religion's faith, but that could be just at most 50% of the population or 60%. But if you look at Asia, some of the countries demonstrate like over 90% of people who believe in one faith. So the way people think, the way people behave, they could be very different. So I hope the psychology of religion's focus will gradually shift to Asia. And also there are multiple faiths within Asia. The Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam is also very much here. Plus, the cultural backgrounds are different. In Asia, it's more of a collective society in most of the countries. They come from very different uh, traditional cultures. For example, one incident uh, that struck me about Singapore that's so unique because of, of its cultural mix. I'm not sure whether you heard about the Kuro syndrome or Kuro epidemic. It's about the fear of male genital retraction amongst males. In Chinese and in Asian belief, especially in Singapore, back in the 1960s, it happened in Singapore. There was a massive scare. Males are panicked about their genitals retracting into their body. Because of cultural belief here that says that would happen, that's one of the traditional kind of Chinese diagnoses. If you are male genital retracted completely, you die. So that was this belief. And it created a panic after one school kid went to hospitals uh, holding dearly to his uh, genital and said, oh, doctor, help me, it's retracting. But of course, it, it's nonsense. But unfortunately, this news got spread across uh, the entire nation. Like hundreds of people rushed to the hospitals and the government had to produce a broadcast the doctors coming out saying, well, there's no such thing as a genital retraction. And it doesn't have the, the enough impact to stop people from going to the hospital. And the government even, they think it has more to do with psychological stress. So they got some psychiatrists coming out to say, it's actually your stress. It's just a result from a severe stress. That what we call the coral epidemic happened in Singapore and Singapore only, because one incident of boy claiming that happened, because it, it is in their culture. They know the consequences. So that's how different Asia could be. <laughs> so that probably wouldn't happen in, in, uh, in Western countries or in other places, but in Asia, yes, there are a lot of traditions in the culture that uh, we cannot ignore, but to really study it. So I think that center of focus should shift to uh, Asia. And I hope also there will be a lot more psychological, empirical tests on the various aspects of Buddhism. Because as you say, there are increasingly lesser and lesser people believe in religion. Because the more education they get, 
they realize, oh, a lot of things can be explained away uh, using science. So religions in, in Asia, or not just Asia, in, around the world, they are all facing the same challenge, that how are you going to bridge the gap between faith and science? And psychology is in a very fortunate position that we are studying the working of people's mind in a scientific way. And Buddhism especially, it is an ancient study of people's mind. So if we could see more psychological testing and research that is to check on the various Buddhist belief, approach, practices, and that will, I hope, benefit more people in the future. So that's my hope. Oh, wow. That's um, very strong points. I must say thank you for um, putting all this uh, information um, together in this episode and providing and sharing it with all of us. Those are all the questions that we can fit in for today. Thanks you for joining in. And if anyone has gotten interested in what you are doing and would like to reach out, what is a easy way to find and reach you? Oh, if you want to look him up, LinkedIn, that will be perhaps easiest. Just type my name in, Barry Z, T-S-E, and you can easily find me. So I don't think there are, there are that many berries around in mindfulness and uh, psychology. Right, right. I will also make sure to link your contacts in the show notes then. And now from Thank me, you, Robin. Yeah, that's just left for me to say thank you so much for finding the time. And I appreciate it very much that you have been on here. So that is the Singapore episode for this week. And we are going to uh, be back in a fortnight with one more episode. And that one will be about China. So keep tuned for that. And for now, I would like to say bye bye and see you soon. <laughs>